This is from the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 1, verses, I'm sorry, chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Let's read from God's holy word. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. And he led him up and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship me, it shall be all yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. All right. Well, I tell you what, I am so excited about this sermon series because, well, let me put it this way. You know, all roads in the Bible lead to Jesus. That's a quote actually from Charles Spurgeon. But on some of those roads, and I think you know what I'm talking about if you've read a lot, specifically the Old Testament, some of those roads, well, there's mountains and there's forests in the way, and it's difficult to know how to get to Jesus, how to see the Son of God. It's not like it's right there in front of you, and you really need to pray, and the Spirit of God needs to open up your mind to understand the text, and you will get to Jesus. You will get to the Son of Man, the Son of God. Other roads, however, it's like you turn a corner, you go around a curve, and there he is right in front of you, clear. Well, this is the experience I think we're going to have this summer. It's actually the experience you get whenever you read the Gospels. And we're going to travel the road to Jesus along the Gospel of Luke that tells us the good news about Jesus. And that experience is going to be one I think that could be transformative. I believe it will be, or I wouldn't be preaching it, obviously. But I think we're going to find that each week we're going to see Jesus a little bit, maybe in a fresh way. You know, I like the game Boggle. I don't know if you've ever played the, the Boggle game, where you have a tray and you have all these cubes with letters on it, and you shake it, level off the cubes, and then you have to form words, three letters or more, um, that you see on that. Well, one of the things that our, that our family does as a salt shaker is going down, about halfway down, we rotate the cube. And whenever you rotate it, you start seeing words you couldn't see from the other angle. And so that's what we're going to try to do. And in fact, we're going to try to do it rightly because you can actually artificially do that when you look at Jesus through the Gospels. Uh, we don't want to force anything. We want the beauty and the majesty of Jesus to emerge. 
naturally, actually supernaturally. So that's what we're going to do. So we're going to begin in Luke 4, as you already heard Larry read, and we're going to begin with the temptation of Jesus. But let me give you a little bit of a preparation. We won't see that he overcame temptation as an example for us to do the same as if he says afterwards, that's how you do it. That is, by the way, the most common interpretation of this passage. It is the way that most pastors, or I guess, let me qualify that, at least the majority that I've ever heard, uh, tend to extract from here how we can overcome temptation through the example of Jesus. That's really not the approach we're about to take. There's a much greater purpose for Luke including this story. Story. So we're going to begin at Luke 4. We're going to find that purpose. We're on a road. We're coming around a corner and right in front of us is Jesus. And let's look at the Bible again. And here's what it says, Luke 4 verse 1. And Jesus, well right there for a second, the word and is a conjunction. In other words, it's a bridge word. So you can't really go and Jesus full of the Spirit without really going backwards in the rearview mirror and see where he came from. We're going to glance at that in a moment. The verse actually right before this at the end of Luke 3. But in Luke 1, Luke 4, verse 1, and Jesus full of the Holy Spirit returned from the Jordan. Remember, he was baptized there. And was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Real quick, it's not even really part of this message, but being tempted is in a Greek tense that really hints that temptation was going throughout the entire 40 days. We get to see three of them happening, and that's what we're going to be looking at. So let me give you three points. They're all going to center on Jesus, and the first one, you're going to wonder, why is he even mentioning this? Because it seems so simple, and here it is, point number one, Jesus was tempted by the devil. All right, now I'm dumbing down the sermon, right? Let's see where we go with this. First of all, the word devil. Diabolos is really what it is in the Greek. It's a term, actually it translates the Hebrew Old Testament word Satan. So devil and Satan, same term. They really mean the same thing. It means the word devil, accuser, slanderer, and divider. Now you're already learning something just because we're not really seeing this passage as directly an example for us to overcome temptation. We're going to pull out the meaning in a minute, but there's a lot we're going to learn along the way. One of them is, well, the devil is always going to slander. He's always going to divide. He's always going to accuse. It is his nature. Look at Revelation 12 up on the screen, verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. Now watch what he does all the time. He accuses them day and night before our God. You know what you know what the devil's doing every day every night he's constantly accusing the saints that's what he does it's his nature he cannot say a good word about you 
He cannot say something kind. He cannot pull out good things that you do, positive things that you do. He's constantly putting before God, throwing it in God's face. That's the best you've got, Tim Ackley? He's one of your saints? Well, you're not doing very well, God. This is the devil's nature. Accusation, slander, condemnation. Listen, I wanna, I want, this is actually a freebie, okay? But it's really, really important. And it's actually something I've learned really recently very deeply. When somebody is constantly slandering you or when somebody is bringing slander against you, I need you to understand something. That is not the voice of your father in heaven because he doesn't speak like that. He doesn't speak like that. So if that's not the voice of your Father in heaven, it really disempowers the toxicity and the hurt and the damage when someone is saying very unkind things about you. Even though they might be true, God will still say them graciously. You see, accusation, slander, and condemnation are not the languages of our gracious God. They are the languages of the devil. Our Heavenly Father does not speak that way. And Christian, you need to hear this. Neither should you nor I. We shouldn't talk like that. We don't need to slander people. In fact, it is not the work of the Spirit in you to do it. No matter how self-righteous you might feel, no matter how empowered and right you might feel, it is not the language of God through you. It's coming from a different source. But the devil does speak this way, and so do those he influences, for his nature is to slander and to accuse. And now listen to this. His favorite weapon in doing this is temptation. You see, the word tempted has two meanings. And if you don't understand this, a lot of scripture is not going to make sense. In fact, it's going to bring a little confusion. I'll read to you a passage uh, in a moment that brings a lot of confusion to everybody, but, or at least to a lot of people, but I'm going to clear it up. Here it is. The word tempted has two main meanings. One meaning is this. It means to test or prove in a good sense. When it's used positively, Tempted means to test or prove. It's a word that they would actually use to test or approve or assay gold or silver. But when it's used in a bad sense in the Bible, it means to entice to evil. Now, I've given you two meanings, all right? Now, these are the two meanings in the Bible. It either means that you're being test tested and thus proven to be a child of God, or you're being enticed to do evil. Now, here's where the clarity needs to come. God cannot tempt anyone, meaning he cannot entice anyone to evil. He cannot do it. But he will test us. And when he does, his aim is to prove himself faithful and our faith genuine. So when you go through a trial, you go through a test, it is not to entice you to evil if it is from God. It is to prove the genuineness of your faith and to prove the enduring faithfulness of your God. Now, however, Satan tempts. And Satan never 
tests so that you can, he can prove your faith genuine. He is always enticing us to forsake God, to satisfy our own desires, to try to discredit God. In fact, I want you to remember this. If you don't really remember much else, well, there's two things I really want you to remember. I'll try to remind you when we get to the last one. But here's the first of the two things. Every temptation the devil sends you, Christian, is a swipe at God. Now let that come down into your heart. See, you're just a pawn. I'm just a pawn. He's really going after God. He really wants to discredit God. He really wants to defame God to whom, Christian, you belong. You cannot read beyond the first two chapters of Job without really understanding this. It is always, every temptation of the devil, ultimately a swipe at God. Now James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. What James is saying, he's using the Greek word tempted, tempts there as an enticement to evil. God cannot do it. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth Death. Now, can we all get on the same level playing ground? We all understand temptation personally. In fact, if you would just for a moment think back, and you likely don't need to go back very far in your memory, when was the most recent time that you can recall being tempted? I'm really not talking about being tempted to eat chocolate cake when you're trying to lose 10 pounds to get to the beach. I'm not really talking about that kind of temptation. I'm talking about really a spiritual attack whereby the devil is trying to entice you to fulfill your own desires rather than wait on God so that he could take a smack at God's face. When's the last time that you've been tempted by the devil? I don't think you need to go back far. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was a, a German pastor executed under the, the uh, Hitler's uh, reign. He wrote very, um, I would say, very provocatively, very evocatively, of really expounding James 1. He writes this, in each of us, boy, I really want you to think about this. In each of us, there is a slumbering inclination towards desire, which is both sudden and fierce. All at once, a secret smoldering fire is kindled. Joy in God is being extinguished in us, and we seek all our joy in the creature or creation. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality, and only desire for the creature is real. You see, Satan does not here fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. It is here that everything within me rises up against the word of God. Now, can you identify with that? 
When you are in the grip of temptation, it is very seldom accompanied by anger and vengeful retribution against God. In fact, it almost never is. But it is almost always accompanied by a forgetfulness of God. In other words, you're in the grip and in the teeth of your desire that has gone from a godly desire to a lust and a craving. And all of a sudden, it becomes a need for you, whereas it wasn't a need in your godly desire desire level, now it becomes a need, and when it becomes a need, now you are right, and you are just in reaching for it. In fact, you don't even know why God would have a problem with it. See, what we need to understand is that temptation pulls and inflames a desire within us that may begin at a godly level until it consumes us to the point where we forget God, we forget his word, we are oblivious and intent to travel the path to self-fulfillment. And this is the strategy of the devil and temptation, but would he succeed with Jesus? Point number two, we're about to find out. Jesus was tempted in all ways that we are tempted in all ways that we are, and maybe the modern cynic among us might say, well, he didn't have the internet. There really wasn't pornography. There really wasn't Amazon where all of your materialistic desires could find their fulfillment. Doesn't the subline of Amazon have the word fulfillment or at least a fulfillment center in Amazon, ironic. But Jesus was tempted in all ways that we are. All temptations we ever will face fall into what the Apostle John wrote. Now you need to know this, friends, write this down. This is unbelievably helpful for you to resist and overcome temptation. For all that is in the world, here's the three avenues that every temptation will come through. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. There's not a fourth. All temptation, every single one of them will come through one or more of these avenues. It's not from the Father, but it is from the world. This is the devil's playground. This is where his temptations take place. There are three avenues of temptations, temptation, and each are employed against our Lord in the wilderness. Thus, why I would say that Jesus was tempted in all ways that we are. Let's look at them first. The desires of the flesh. Well, look at your text, verse 2. Luke writes, and he says, and he, Jesus, ate nothing during those days, 40 days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. That has to be an understatement. <laughs> in fact, it might be the biggest understatement in all the Gospel of Luke, perhaps. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now, they are in the Judean wilderness. It's a wilderness below Judea. It's about 15 miles wide, 35 miles deep. He is deeply in this. It's nothing but ravines, craggy hilltops. There's nothing that lives there, only wild animals as the gospel 
of Jesus, according to Mark tells us. So he's in there. There's stones all over the place. They even have the shape of loaves of bread. This is the barrenness of this wilderness. You know, I've read that when fasting for weeks, which I honestly have never done, but I've read that when you fast for weeks, hunger strangely leaves you. But then it comes roaring back with almost nearly overwhelming pain. So Jesus ate nothing for 40 days. Nothing. That is incredible. Almost inconceivable in our modern day of all this food around us. Ate nothing for 40 days. Fasting. And the devil attacked in his most physically vulnerable time. If you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Now what Jesus does here is quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. Now fun, interesting, and incredibly important fact. Every one of the responses of Jesus to all three of these temptations come from the book of Deuteronomy. And though I'm not going to really talk about it very much, in fact, I won't talk about it at all, that plays a role in what we're going to see in point number three, because Jesus did what the Israelites did not, because the Israelites faced all three of those avenues of temptation and fell to each one of them. But the Son of God is greater than the Son of God, Israel. Did you know Israel's called the Son of God in the Old Testament? Now we've got the superiority of Jesus is coming into mind. And if you don't know that all of these answers from Jesus are coming very intentionally from Deuteronomy, you're going to miss it. Because here's what Deuteronomy 8.3 says. Here's the full quote of it. Man does not live by bread alone. Now here it is. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now, in our modern ears, this side of the completion of the Bible, we automatically say, but man lives by the word of God, the scriptures. And that is absolutely correct. But Jesus has in mind this, man lives by all of the will of God that he has made clear in his scriptures. It is the will of God that is in mind, and it has come out of the mouth of the Lord into the written pages of the word of God that you have in your hands. And Jesus would later tell his disciples, don't you remember in John 4 when he is talking to that Samaritan woman and she goes to go get her husband and they're all going to come back and the disciples come back with food and they're trying to get him to eat because he's obviously tired and he's hungry and he says to his disciples, get the significance of this, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. In other words, my food is my strength. My strength is my desire. My greatest desire is what he's saying, is to do God's will, not my own. And I will live by his word. In other words, he's saying this to the devil here in Luke 4. Yes, devil, I am hungry. But my father knows it. 
and he will provide food when he chooses, but I will depend completely on his provision for my life in all things. Now listen, Christian, do you understand what we're already learning from Jesus is that every time we give in to temptation, it is because our desire for a creature or a creation is greater than our desire for our God. There's not an exception to this. You see, to succumb to temptation is to refuse to trust that God has our best in mind. So we reach out and we pluck that which we believe is going to satisfy us. We have a desire. We don't really know if God's going to answer it, if God's going to meet it, if God's going to give it. So we go around God, we reach for it in our own self-fulfillment, thereby betraying all the time. We really don't believe that God is good. You see, sin is a disbelief in God's goodness, and temptation is the incitement to believe that lie. All the devil has to do is tease it out of your heart and tease it out of mine. And he tries to do it with Jesus. Don't you think your father cares? You got to be starving, Jesus. And you know he could turn that rock into bread. He fed Elijah with ravens. He fed Israelite by the power of his own word. Surely he could feed you, but he's not. So does your father really love you? And if he doesn't love you, and if he's not really good, then exercise your prerogative and fulfill your own desire. That is temptation that leads to sin. But the truth is this, Christian, and I hope you understand this, and I hope you remember this. If you need something for your happiness and your joy, you truly need it for your well-being, do you, do you not believe your heavenly Father would give it? Do you really believe that your heavenly Father, if you need something, truly need it, is going to withhold that from you? Surely Jesus had a great desire to eat, but he had a greater desire to depend on his father, knowing that God will fulfill his desire when it is time. He will not do it himself. Well, how about the desires of the eyes? That was the desire of the flesh or the body, the physical desires. Now we get to the desires of the eyes, verse 5. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give you all this authority for their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Now, before you think for a moment that that's not really a truism. He's not, the devil's not really that far off from the truth. He is the prince of the power of the air. God the Father has given him this world to exercise with a limited degree of freedom. However, God stands sovereign over him. It's not really his right to give the world's authority to who he wants, but he certainly has a lot of power. There, you know, there's a consistent path that temptation takes in a Christian. We have a desire for something that we believe is going to fulfill us. A duel erupts between doubt 
and belief that God's going to provide. We make a decision either to disobey or to wait on God to provide it, and whichever one you choose determines whether you will experience emptiness or blessing. So there is a desire. We all have desires. The Bible says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Walk with God, be with God, abide with him, dwell with him, and the desires you have are going to be the desires he's putting in you. And he'll be glad to fulfill them. So we all have desires, but sometimes we have desires for something that we really believe we need in order to be fulfilled. And when we have that desire, all of a sudden there's the conflict. I really want it. I really need it. I don't know if God will give it. And because I don't know, well, am I going to be obedient and wait on God to provide it if and when he chooses? Or will I go around God to an idol to get for me what I'm craving? Well, whichever one you choose, and there's only two choices, one will bring blessings and the other one will bring guilt. It will bring emptiness. Do you recall that when Eve in Genesis chapter 3 saw that the tree was good for food, the desires of the eyes, and that it was a delight to the eyes, she took of its fruit and ate and then gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. They both were led into sin through the desire of their eyes. Actually, they were led into sin through all three avenues, the desire of their bodies, the desire of their eyes, and the very willful pride of life. Job 31.7 tells us that our hearts go after our eyes. Friends, it is so important that we learn to put a hand over our eyes, or as Job said, I promised myself never to stare with desire at a young woman, or I clap my hands over my eyes so that I will not look lustfully at a girl. The only way he knew, Job knew, your heart will follow. Your desires get stoked. They get increased. Here's the classic way for the modern person. All of a sudden, you think, you know, I would really be happy if I had this object. In fact, I would not only be happy, I need it in my life. And so let me research so that I can make the best purchase, you know, to give the leftover money to the Lord. <laughs> So we get on Amazon and we begin reading reviews and we watch YouTube podcasts on it. And all of a sudden, what began as a godly desire is growing and it's enraging to become something that has become lust and craving. And now it's something I need. And surely God knows that I need it. Therefore, he's okay if I buy it. And then two weeks, three weeks afterwards, you wonder why don't I still feel the same way after I bought it? It was a temptation the whole time. Desires follow our eyes, so the devil shows Jesus the kingdoms on earth and a waiting throne that is waiting for him. In other words, Jesus could have the crown without the cross. 
Now, I'm afraid you might be missing this. He could have the glory without the gory. He could have it all without paying the price of suffering and crucifixion. The devil's offering him a shortcut. The end result's going to be the same, but you don't have to go through the valley of the shadow of death to get it. Do you not believe that would be something that would pull most of us from a godly desire to a need? This is a brilliant temptation by the devil. But it was about to fail spectacularly. Verse 8, Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. He's not going to take a shortcut. He won't take the alternate plan. He would seek no easy way, but he would take the, way, the path that his father had given him. Why? Now listen, because he desired his father's glory more than his own. He desired his father's smile more than his own happiness. He desired his father's pleasure more than his own comfort. He would not seek his own kingdom. He would not sit on a throne of his own making. He would wait for the throne that his father was going to give him and he would have it by worshiping and serving him. Do you realize that the word worship most fundamentally means to serve? And you see the connection right in that verse. Now, this is a great principle, friends. When we yield to temptations of desire, we actually forfeit the true blessings you could have had. Don't you see this? Trusting in God, depending on God, brings you the greatest blessing, but it comes in God's way and it comes in God's time. Jesus got everything the devil tempted him with, but he got it in a way that glorified his father. Temptation that leads to sin forfeits all of that. Now think about that when you're in a dating relationship and you know you want to consummate that relationship. You know you want fulfillment in that relationship. You know there's a line. You know it's, okay. it's not okay to go across it, but you're being tempted and you're getting closer to that line and then you're right on the precipice of having to make a decision. You'll have it all when you get married. But God says you got to wait. And if you wait you will have it in more bounty than you ever could have realized. But if you take it now, this will be a hardship in your marriage. You know, I've done so much marriage counseling. I have never seen an exception that couples who do not wait to fulfill their desires invariably struggle in that area in their marriage. God says, if you honor me, I will honor you. If you do not honor me, I will dishonor you. And yes, the gospel can meet that and the gospel can repair that through the mercy of God, but it is a long struggle and I have never, ever, ever seen an exception to it. Wait on God. You will get everything that he wants you to have, but it will come with holiness and purity and better than you ever imagined. Well, the third one is the pride of life. And he took him to Jerusalem, verse 9, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands it will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Well, if you go to your commentaries, you're going to probably read 
that there, was, there could have been one of two places that the, the devil took him. It could have been the 450-foot-high rooftop of the royal portico it was, uh, of the temple. It overlooked the Kidron Valley. It was a 450-foot drop to the rocks below. Or it could have been the highest point on the sanctuary that would have dropped 150 feet to the courtyard below. My guess, it's the latter. The one at the courtyard below where there would have been scores of people to witness him suspended in midair by invisible angels while he spectacularly floats harmlessly to the ground. You see, the temptation the devil was enticing him with was to show the world that he was a son of God with power, with majesty. After all, who is ever going to follow a poor, humble, unpretentious leader? You've got to reveal yourself in glory, in power, in majesty. How different is the world than the kingdom of God? Because in the world, the latter always goes up to an ever-increasingly lofty position. More power, more authority, more money, that's the career ladder. But in the kingdom of God, it goes the exact opposite, down into slavery and servanthood. So the devil quotes Psalm 91. He's already been bested twice by the word of God. So now he quotes the word of God, but he conveniently left a critical part out. Psalm 91 verse 11, for he will command his angels concerning you. And then he leaves out to guard you in all your ways. He leaves those words out. And he does it for a reason. Because all your ways are God's ways, not my ways, not the ways of this world, holy ways, righteous ways. And so, the, so Jesus answered the devil with God's word. It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. In other words, devil, you have a great marketing scheme for me. You got a great promotional track for me to go on, but it will, it will market me. It won't market my father, and I have come to give him glory. I will not put God on the spot. I will not put him to the test. I will not try to force him to act according to my will. No, I will do my father's will and bring him glory in all my ways. You see, testing God is not trusting God. So I will serve devil. I will serve his will and not demand that he serves mine. Now, every single temptation you and I will ever face comes through one or more of these three avenues. The desires of your body, the desires of your eyes, and the pride of your life. And the more you understand that, the more you will begin seeing the underbelly of the great evil that the devil is trying to entice you to. Point number three, and finally, Jesus overcame all temptations and he is our faithful high priest. Now I'm suggesting to you, this is the purpose of why Luke puts this in his gospel. I said at the beginning that learning how to overcome temptation is not really Luke's main point here, but yet I trust that we learned some things along the way. His point for why he included it 
becomes a whole lot more clear when you look at the last four words of Luke 3, verse 38. Remember I told you, and verse 1 of chapter 4 is a bridge word. It's a, it's a conjunction. It bridges this verse, verse 38. And look at the last four words, the Son of God. It's a reference to Adam. But Luke is connecting it to the declaration of the heavenly father. Look at chapter 3, verse 22. The, the father says of his son at his baptism, you are my beloved son. Now you got to watch this thread that Luke is weaving because in chapter 4, both verse 9 and verse 9, the devil begins two of the three temptations if you are the son of God. You see this thread? It's not that the devil was trying to see, are you really the son of God? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? The devil already knew. The father already declared him. The devil is trying to challenge Jesus. He's trying to cause Jesus to doubt his relationship with his father, his identity as his son. In other words, when a good father really let his son starve in the desert, Jesus, forsake him and feed yourself. And would a good father really let his son go through suffering to gain a kingdom? Jesus, forsake his plan. I'll give you the kingdom. And would a good father really ask you to be poor, weak, humble, and unpretentious? Jesus, follow my marketing plan and you can have it all. And all eyes will look on you. But Jesus saw through the deceptions, and unlike the first Adam in Genesis 3, who reached for the desire of his flesh with fruit that he saw to be good, whose heart followed his eyes with a lust to make himself wise, whose pride of life moved him to want to be like God in glory and power, Adam succumbed to all three of those temptation avenues, not Jesus. He's the second Adam, the Bible says. He did not succumb. He loved his father more than anything in this world, even more than his own life. He was full of the Holy Spirit. He was full of the word of God. He, temptation had no pull on his heart. Yes, he's divine. He could not have sinned. Yet he was succumbed to an onslaught of the devil's attacks. Therefore, Hebrews 4 says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect Desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, pride of life has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, Jesus did, friends, what we could not do. He endured all temptation in our place. Therefore, when we are tempted, now listen, when we are tempted, the solution is to not start to try to quote every verse like we're in a scripture duel with the devil, although let the scriptures come to mind. It's not to try to buckle down and moralistically grab some sort of intestinal fortitude and say no to your desires. You're eventually going to lose. And that's not the solution. When you are tempted, when I'm tempted, the solution is to flee to Jesus. 
We don't need a formula for resisting temptation. We need Jesus. We need his power. We need his righteousness. We have a great high priest. He understands the ways of the devil. He understands the difficulty of his attacks. He understands our weaknesses of our bodies and our flesh. We have a great high priest who offered himself as our sacrifice. And he gave us his righteousness, the power to do right. So Christian, when temptation comes, here's, here's what you do. You go to him boldly and you will find grace and you will find mercy in your time of need. He is your shield, he is your victory, he is interceding, he is praying for you, he is your great high priest, so go to him with confidence. I'm closing in a minute, minute and a half. So really, really hear what I'm about to tell you. Every temptation that the devil unleashes at you and at me is a swipe at the face of God. And when we fall, the devil cares nothing about me. He cares nothing about you. He is cackling in glee because he believes he defamed God. He discredited God. God, look at your saint and look what I just did to that person. What kind of a God are you? You are weak. You are contemptible. Do you see how serious it is that when we face temptation, don't try to defeat it in your power, you will lose. Don't try to get in a scripture quoting contest with the devil, he probably knows it better than you, definitely better than me. The answer is flee to your high priest. He faced and overcame every temptation in your place so he can help you endure it as well. But every temptation, here's my final statement, every temptation is allowed by God and it's a purpose, it has a purpose, it's a test. Will we trust in God that he is good? And will we forsake our own fulfilling of that desire and wait on him in his way and in his time to fulfill that desire better than we ever could. Some of your greatest blessings will come when you say no to temptation, but you forfeit some of your greatest blessings when you yield to it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for what we have seen in this passage, Lord. This was, I believe, far, far more than just giving us a formula to defeat temptation. Although I trust all of us we're encouraged by it. Lord, it's about the Son of God. It's about who Jesus is. It's about his victory over the temptation. He defeated the devil. He overcame the world. He has crucified our flesh. He is our great high priest. His victory was in place of ours. So we don't need to rely on our power. We need to go to him for his. Lord, let us learn to flee to the throne of mercy. 
And it's a very wise thing to take some people with us, fellow Christians with us, who will pray, who will hold us up, who will go there with us. Lord, I pray that we would realize and understand the true purpose for this passage and that we would be more amazed with Jesus than we ever were. We came around a corner, came around a curve, and there was Jesus right in front of us in all of his glory. It's in the name of that amazing Savior we say amen.